Welcome to the Public Morality. Regardless of your politics, race, or gender, it is more than likely you know something about the trial of Derek Chauvin, the police officer accused of the murder of George Floyd. It is estimated that three in four Americans say they have seen the video of Chauvin restraining Floyd and the public has made up its mind about his guilt. Perhaps not since the 1995 trial of O.J. Simpson has there been so much national media attention given to a local trial. But the death of Floyd is not simply a local trial. It may in some respects reflect on a commentary of this nation. We welcome to the public morality Notre Dame University political science professor Darren Davis. Among his areas of focus, Professor Davis' scholarship includes the study of political and social attitudes, racism, and racial politics, and the political behavior of African Americans. Professor Darren Davis, welcome to The Public Morality. Thank you very much, and thank you for having me. Uh, Let's begin. How important is it from your perspective that uh, Derek Chauvin be found guilty for the death of George Floyd? So I was afraid you were going to ask that question. Um, <clears throat> my view is that um, this is one case. It is important. It is not the single most important issue, though, because we need a string of guilty verdicts. One guilty verdict is not enough. So, so while this is important, Um, in order to restore this sense of justice, we need to figure out what the actual rule is and not just the uh, aberrant case here. Hmm. Um, You you know, to that that extent, you know, uh, it's commonplace uh, to see protesters, you mentioned before, not just this case but other cases, um, you see people holding signs declaring justice for, and you just fill in the blank, Breonna Taylor, Eric Garner, uh, in this case, George Floyd. Uh, when dealing with the absurd, uh, in this case, the, 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 the nine minutes and 29 seconds, um, just given just how gr- horrific that was for a lot of people, how can anything be tantamount to justice? Uh, regardless of the outcome? Um, So whatever happens in this case is going to be temporary because justice is always fleeting. Um, When I've been watching the trial, I've been saddened because... Why does justice take such a Herculean effort? Justice uh, should be something that is easily attainable. But when I look at this trial, um, and I think the prosecution is actually doing a doing a great job, but I'm saddened because I'm not so sure that that Herculean effort is attainable for us or for just ordinary uh, African-American citizens. Mm. Uh, 
Well, how much, in your view, sir, does unconscious bias drive the positions we hold? Um, I think, personally speaking, unconscious bias is an overreach. Um, I've been hearing a lot of people talk about unconscious bias, implicit bias. Um, I think we all have blind spots. We all have uh, triggers within us. But, um, but what I'm seeing is overt conscious racial prejudice. It, in this new era in which we're talking about unconscious motivations, we cannot minimize overt racial prejudice as um, motivating certain types of behavior. Um, so unconscious bias is real. I think we all have those blind spots and I think we need to work on them. But at the same time, that doesn't preclude overt racial prejudice. Mm -hmm. Uh, with that, uh, to your last answer, sir, was that would, would that explain why I was just reading uh, a poll, recent poll taken at the start of the trial by the Economist magazine, um, and it found that fifty-seven percent of adults, regardless of race, believe Chauvin should be found guilty. Sixty um, percent um, also believe, nearly sixty percent believe that the death of George Floyd is reflective of, of a broader problem. Why do you think this case has got galvanized those attitudes? Because in, in, in cases past, we've not seen even that type of alliance. It's usually we can pretty much predict how people feel based on their politics, I mean, their political affiliation, their race, their gender, so, so on and so forth. But you see a galvanizing here that we've not seen in years past. Why, why do you think this one has that? Well, I kind of disagree, actually, because I think in every case it is clear Remember back to Rodney King, we thought that that was a clear case because it was captured on video. Um, there are so many other cases that we think are no-brainers that um, can be easily determined. With, with uh, George Floyd, it's captured on video. Uh, the evidence, I think, is uncontrovertible. And yet, yet... We're still holding our breath to, to assess or evaluate whether it's going to be a guilty verdict or whether it's going to be an acquittal. I mean, that, that speaks volumes because we're still uncertain. So my response to your question is, every time this case, cases like this come up, we have uncontrovertible proof or evidence or or at least we think it is uh, clear proof. Um, but in this case, we have video evidence. We have we we even have police testifying against police. Um, but yet and still, there's still some uncertainty. Yeah. And to your point, also in that Economist poll, uh, for only forty percent believe that um, Chauvin will be found guilty. So, just to to your point, um, you you mentioned you mentioned um, uh, police testifying against police. Uh, the so-called vaunted blue wall um, does not seem to be as strong in this case as it has been in prior cases. 
Any explanation for that? Any thoughts about that? Well, you know, in my previous comments, when I said a Herculean effort, that is what I'm actually referring to. To seek justice, to arrive at justice, is it going to take police testifying against the police? And this is why I think um, uh, this case is so important because um, um, we don't have a sense that just any anyone can receive this type of justice. That we have video evidence, we have police testifying against the police, a very tight prosecutorial case, but yet and still we are holding our breath and. I think telling than anything else. Um, going forward, I mean, do you see you, the, the, the poll numbers I cited coupled with your last answer? Do, do, do you see uh, a potential paradigm shift in terms of attitudes or, or should we just be looking at the George Floyd case and no further? It's, it's going to take more than just a guilty verdict in this case to have a paradigm shift. Uh, we need a, a multitude of cases where uh, justice is being served and, and where African-Americans feel like justice is being served. That has to become the rule and, 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 and this case cannot be the exception. Um, so justice requires a history, justice requires this paradigm shift. I don't think that this one case is going to achieve that. Um, well, that said, um, do you worry then that um, the Derek Chauvin trial uh, in, in some ways is standing proxy for those cases, as you said earlier, that, that, that many thought were slam dunks um, that went the other way. Um, is, is he standing proxy for those cases as well? Um, maybe not proxy, but, 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 but certainly there, there'll be an influence. I think um, um, people in the African-American community uh, want justice, uh, want justice to be served. But, but for many African-Americans, this is just the beginning because of our history, um, because of recent events this week, last week, <laughs> the week before, you know, these things keep resurfacing. And, and, you know, just this week and last week, there were more cases of of young African American males being being murdered by the police, and so this has to be a starting point. This can't be the end of a process. What well, what is your response, um, taking a contrarian view, uh, for those who may say to you, uh, since uh, as I referred to the the statistics earlier in the Economist? That so many people have already made up their minds. Is it is it possible for Derek Chauvin to receive a fair trial, and is that perpetuating the same as injustice as those who took to the you know 
uh, who, who complained about injustice and, and took the streets for George Floyd initially. So is, is Chauvin receiving the same kind of injustice given the fact that everybody's made up their minds? How do you respond to that? Um, 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 half made up their minds. I think uh, the jury is probably uh, able to render a fair uh, uh, verdict, um, unbiased uh, verdict, uh, hopefully. Um, but um, Byron, the facts are what they are. I mean, we have seen this replay many, many times over the past several months. The evidence is there. Um, and we cannot expect people to discount what they see and what they read and what they learn about the case. Um, look, an important feature that I think people are, are, are failing to remember is that is that is that what we saw um what we read about the case is that when it comes to these types of of cases of justice um people become actual experts um believe it or not um people become informed uh, they become informed about um evidence they become informed about legal processes and I think this is what has happened in this case. I'm speaking with Professor Darren Davis. Professor Davis is a political science professor at Notre Dame University in South Bend, Indiana. Professor Davis, uh, given that there are some 18,000 police departments nationwide, is it possible to offer a baseline set of reform policies that every uh, department should adhere to? Is that possible? Is that, or is that a reach? Um, I think that's a goal. Uh, is it possible? Um, probably because of the various uh, interest groups, maybe not. But that is something that we should probably aspire to. Um, we should hold um, police departments accountable in our democracy. Um, um, so it... I think it's an aspirational goal, uh, whether politically this is going to happen or not. Um, I'm, I'm not very optimistic. Hmm. Uh, you know, one of the things we, we talked about unconscious bias earlier, um, there is, at least with the defense is uh, uh, um, objective, they're sort of trying out what I call these familiar tropes that – there may have been other things associated with Mr. Floyd's death, um, including drug use. And though I understand they have a duty to defend their client, the larger issue, um, does the defense in some ways attempt to appeal to that unconscious bias uh, of race that we, that we sort of talked about earlier? Um, yes, not only that, but it, but it plays off. Uh, racial stereotypes. It's it's uh, playing off of, of other types of negative uh, 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 racial information um, about black men in particular, um, and 
I think it is uh, not just unconscious bias, but I think consciously it is raising certain stereotypes and other negative racial information. So, um, so while I think unconscious bias again is real, I think the defense is actually consciously playing on overt stereotypes and characterizations of African-American men. Um, I want to, I want to go, uh, we hadn't touched on this yet, but we, we talked earlier about just some of the different, how people of color may see something versus how the dominant culture may see something. And, and I know this is some of the work that, 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 that you're directly involved in since there's a, what I'm defining as an absurd component to racism to the point it's difficult to fully comprehend unless you've experienced it. I guess the same way if, if I were a woman and I experienced misogyny, if I were a gay and lesbian brother and sister and I experienced homophobia. Um, talk about the, the difficulty of explaining the absurd to someone who's, who may not be in that group. Uh, that's a good question. Um, I think, um, first of all, people have to approach race with a very open mind. Race is one of the most polarizing issues in American society. As soon as you mention race, um, people do a, a couple things. One, uh, they come out ready to do battle. And race is an issue on which everybody thinks they're experts. So not only is race polarizing, but people think they already know what there is to know about race and about racial experiences. Um, I see this in my classes every day. Um, you know, People come straight off the farm. They have never interacted with uh, people who are different, who may look differently than them. But you know what? They, they've already made up their minds and they're already racial experts. They've, they've never been anywhere. They have never interacted with people who are different, but yet and still they have information they have information from the media, they have information from the internet, and they have already made up their minds. So one of the biggest hurdles, I think, for people to be able to put, them, put themselves in the shoes of others is really approaching race with um, an open mind and also learning how race works in American society. Mm. I, I know this is your uh, part of your field of expertise, but I'm, I'm just wondering, do you ever uh, grow weary of what seems to be an often repeated conversation um, with the kind of absurdity in, in the, in, 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 on the, in the aftermath of police violence? Do, I mean, I'm just, I just want, I'm curious, do you grow weary, even though this is your area of expertise? <laughs> 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 um, no, I don't get tired of talking about these issues. Um, um, I consider myself a regular old college professor 
and um, I teach. I try to inform um, when it's possible. Um, um, I view um, one of my goals in life is to try to um, uh, enlighten and inform um, people how um, I experience things and about how race operates. You know, there's this voluminous literature out there on race. There's been millions and millions of research articles and books that have been written about race. And this is something that I think um, um, I hope to uh, bring to people is, is that understanding. It's not my personal biases and understanding, but based on data, based on research, that there are actual things that we know about race and how race and ethnicity operates. Um, so, so I, I am not weary of sharing data, talking about data, talking about analyses, talking about how this stuff operates. Mm-hmm. Uh, then, 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 then on the sort of uh, on the personal level. Um, and I, and I and I will. Uh, this is one of the rare times I I, I will speak about my own my own position. Uh, just on a personal level, I hear um, uh, black man shot by police, and I probably have gotten to the point that I don't. I'm not as shocked as perhaps I should be, and um, I question that sometimes. That not that I don't care about it. Not that I'm. Not concerned, but there's a frequency that, that that I worry has made me numb, and I wonder if you ever felt that way. Yes, I do, and and I often feel that way. I I feel that uh, those issues are being normalized, uh, and they're being normalized to the point where um, uh, we don't hear about them. Um, we don't hear about the uh, instances across the country of, of profiling, of, 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 of murdering um, innocent black men. Um, so um, I'm afraid, I'm afraid that this is being normalized, that it is no longer shocking. Um, um, in this process of normalization, I also fear that it's becoming to be tolerated. It, it, is, it is not being objected to. It is not being rejected that, you know, that this should not happen. Um, we should not accept this. But in this process of, of normalizing these events, um, we lose sight of the individual. We become disconnected to justice. And when we do that, um, we become disconnected from each other and from um, the responsibilities of government and the responsibilities of, of, of law enforcement. Law enforcement is intended to protect us. You mentioned earlier uh, uh, just about the impact that the race has uh, on the on the American landscape, 
And as a as a political scientist, uh, uh, you, you you definitely um, it's quite possible that you would interact with with race. But the same holds true if one is a historian, if one's a sociologist, if one is a psychologist, an economist, a philosopher, a theologian. I can just go on and on and on. What does that say to you about the impact of race in America when all of these other when all of these disciplines I just mentioned have something to say about it or, or have to at least engage it? Um, it says to me that race is um, complex. It requires a multitude of people to address and to understand fully. Um, it suggests that we all need to come together as academics and as scholars to compare notes, um, to share ideas, to share uh, concerns about how do we prove, improve American society. But it, it suggests to me that race is an intractable issue, that it requires a multitude of individuals um, to try to understand its complexity. And, and some of your scholarship uh, includes um, th- threat perception. As, as I research you, what is that? And does uh, and, and does that threat threat perception a- apply to to this particular case of Derek Chauvin? So, <clears throat> I think. In the larger political scheme of American society, uh, racism is partly driven by uh, threat, uh, not just personal threat. So I, I want to make that clear. It's not just personal threat. It is threat to uh, American values. It is threat to the status quo. It is, it is threat to privilege. In this specific trial, um, I can't help but wonder how threat manifested itself on an individual level. Um, Here, George Floyd is an African-American male, and I think that the way in in which people, even the police, perceive African-American males is threatening. That is based on racial stereotypes that is that is not unconscious bias but that is a racial stereotype that is based on negative racial information in American society um, and there was even video of Chauvin um, talking about how George Floyd was a big black guy and about how they were going to have to take him down so even before that interaction, those stereotypes, those perceptions of African-American men were already at work and they were conscious. They were not unconscious. They were conscious. He admitted that. I saw that on videotape mm. where, where he and his fellow officers we're talking about and referencing the size and how it was going to be tough taking this guy. And, and of course, um, 
so, giving some of your other comments that uh, the 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 size of George Floyd and just those comments. Talk. I mean, just. I mean, I just want you to talk about that further. Talk about why the comment about George Floyd's size makes so much difference in this narrative. Size is important. Also, um, something that hasn't been mentioned in the media is that George Floyd was also darker complexioned. And so, Byron, I think all of this relates to this threat perception, these threatening stereotypes. The, you know, the same thing can be said about George Garner. Um, I mean, excuse me, Eric Garner. Eric Garner, yes. Eric Garner, Eric Garner was a sizable person, dark complexion, and these things trigger um, in whites certain types of racial and racialized um, perceptions. And size matters, uh, skin color matters, and I think that all triggered um, certain types of uh, biases in the police officers. And these biases were not unconscious. Well, you know, it's interesting you mentioned Eric Garner. Um, I'm, I'm thinking because Eric Garner also said, uh, I can't breathe. And I, I'm, I'm wondering, um, not to be too literary here, but, but are we seeing sort of playing out before our eyes uh, sort of the point that Ralph Ellison was making in Invisible Man where, where your humanity is basically not seen by the dominant culture? That's exactly right, Byron. That's a very good point. Um, we have seen these uh, tendencies in many numerous studies about, about racial bias. I mean, look, down at the local hospital, um, physicians um, are not as likely to recognize the pain and suffering of their African-American patients. The same way in which police officers uh, fail to recognize the pain and suffering of 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 black citizens, it it is the same processing. It's the same processing of information. It's the same processing of racial information. That you are exactly right. People um, fail to see the humanity, the suffering, the the um, the ability. To breathe, something as something as basic and simple as the ability to breathe, uh, people fail to recognize. Uh, when, another thing we haven't uh, talked up yet: when we look at uh, many, most of these high-profile cases, does class uh, play a role in this as well? So that is always that is always the pivot, and um, I'm not going to pivot, Byron. I'm going to say no. <laughs> Touche. Okay. I've, I I want to keep the focus on race because we have racial stereotypes. We have negative racial information in American society. We don't have the same equivalent negative information about social class. So the same type of stereotypes that are raised about race are not as ingrained and are not as accessible 
as class-based stereotypes. So um, this is why I'm not willing to pivot off a of race because these racial stereotypes and this negative racial information and the way people process this information is so ingrained um, and class-based information, class-based stereotypes are not as ingrained. Now they exist, don't get me wrong, they exist, but they're, but they're not as ingrained or as accessible as racial stereotypes. Okay. Well, let me, let me, let me pose this to you. Uh, there, there have been a couple cases, a uh, young man in um, Wisconsin, uh, and this sort of ties into the humanity as well. Uh, uh, not long after the, the, um, after Eric Garner was, was killed, there was a young man in Wisconsin, um, there were guns drawn on him. I'm not sure if, if he was the, the, um, the suspect, but there were guns drawn on him. He walks away from his car, uh, the police shoot. And, um, I guess one side of that is, um, Whatever he was doing, he needed to be shot like 10 times in his back. Um, and the young man is paralyzed now. But I guess the other piece is, why do you walk away when police have the guns drawn? And sort of between holding both of those realities, how do you respond to a situation like that? I'm not sure if you're familiar with that one or not, but how do you respond to that? Um, I am familiar with the case. Um, look. My response is that um, growing up, my father, my mother taught me, uh, do what you can to make it home. Um, so there are things that we need to instill in our communities um, and our interaction with the police. I'm not going to deny that. I'm not going to deny that, okay? That there are uh, things that we should and should not do. But Byron, at the same time, that does not give the police to be the judge, the jury, and the executioner. Mm -hmm. No, I was, I, I was just thinking um, that... If you think about over what the last, I don't know, 20, 25 years, 20, 25 years, I mean, if, if you would have told me 25 years ago someone holding up a wallet would result in being shot, as was Amadou Diallo, if you told me someone walking home with iced tea and Skittles um, would be killed by a vigilante or someone sleeping in their home as uh, – uh, Brianna Taylor was uh, would be killed. I mean, uh, if George Floyd. Said, I mean, there's a. I want to go back to this word that I used earlier. There's a level of absurdity that, until it happened, was beyond. I guess I would say most people's uh, comprehension. And, and and any thoughts on that larger landscape that that um, America has been trying to navigate since, since really since its inception. But it's just, but with with the age of video, it has gotten more pronounced. It seems. Right. So, so the reason why I don't want to pivot off of race um, and the reason why 
um, I think implicit racial bias is overblown is because even back in the um, Amadou Diallo case, um, um, it was clear that um, the police officers were dealing with um, um, a black person. I think Amadou Diallo was Haitian. Um, but here's the point. I'm afraid that all this discussion about implicit racial bias will try to make people perceive the police and other perpetrators as less culpable. Um, and um, so that is my reaction, is that, is that these things are conscious. There are conscious triggers that compel a police officer to um, unholster the weapon. That is a conscious decision. Now, whether they pull the trigger or not may be unconscious. I don't, I'm not sure about that. But um, it is clear to me that um, um, police need better training. Um, they need more than just uh, cultural competency class. Um, um, they need extensive review. Um, and going back to a question you asked earlier, is that we need to reconceptualize what policing is like in American society. How is it possible in a democracy for the police to patrol its own citizens, for the government to patrol its own citizens? So I'm a political scientist and the police represents just another extension of government to me. It's just another, it's just another extension of government. And in a democracy in which people should retain the power. Why is it possible for the government to police its own citizens? So I think we need to, to revisit this concept of policing, of police training, of police competency. Um, I think it goes full circle. Now, I, I, I could see, just given your last answer, uh, I can see someone listening saying to you, um, I'm going to channel them here, sir. Okay, Professor Davis, it's, it, it's, but it's impossible to codify the actions of 18,000 local municipalities any more than one can offer that many high-profile cases uh, reflect on policing in general. How do you respond to that? Now, I'm not arguing that police should be defund defunded. I'm not making that argument whatsoever. Um, I think the police should work for us. And, and that this extension of government needs to uh, reconsider uh, how it polices its own citizens in a democracy. In a democracy, we need to 
um, have a greater discourse about what it is uh, uh, policing is seeking to achieve. Um, so don't get me wrong. I, I'm not suggesting that we should defund the police. I'm not suggesting that, although um, that has been considered in several municipalities. Um, I don't know how effective that is. Um, but I do think we need a broader discussion about what is the role of police departments, uh, law enforcement in our democracy. No, I think it's a great question. I mean, you got me wondering, um, does that sort of rebuild um, the the blue wall to transform your question into a more reflexive conversation? I'm wondering if that's the end result of, 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 your, of your query. I was just curious. Um, I'm not sure what the blue wall means. Well, I'm talking about the police. I mean, the police being reflexive uh, uh, in that police departments uh, have had it a certain way for a while. And, and, and regardless of what the, what the outcome is, um, it's still changing on, it's changing our methodology. And, and so I'm saying the blue wall becoming, ref, the police blue wall becoming reflexive and not wanting to hear your particular query and be, be put, put them, putting them on the defensive. <clears throat> well, <clears throat> see, for me, this is not in the hands of the police, actually. This is in the hands of our elected representatives. Our elected representatives need to have uh, a conversation, uh, a, a greater introspection about uh, what should be the role of the police in our democracy. Um, what should our citizens um, um, be expected uh, to do? Um, how do people want to live? Um, um, what are those things, what are those institutions and practices that are incompatible with uh, uh, free um, and it just seems to me that if we have that conversation, the role of law enforcement um, needs also to be within that conversation. Um, to, to, to that end, I'm gonna, I guess I'll end up, I'm gonna, on a more cynical note, unfortunately. <laughs> but what is to prohibit this trial, regardless of the outcome, uh, to be reminiscent of others in that? Uh, there's an emotional reaction. I, I was I was well, I was speaking to the, my producer Michael uh, Burns earlier, and we were talking about this. And he, and he said, even if if Chauvin is 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 found guilty, it, you know, half you know there'll be a, a large portion of the room will, will, will cheer, reminiscent of OJ. The other other portion will might be somber. Um, then there'll be a calming, only to be rou aroused by the next event. And, I, and, I, and I, am I being too cynical? How, how, how do you see this playing out? I see this as uh, nonlinear. Let me elaborate on that a bit. Please. So, so this is nonlinear in the sense that an acquittal will have certainly a different impact and a long lasting impact 
than uh, a conviction. And when there is a conviction, uh, if there is a conviction in this trial, um, it will not last as long because we can anticipate other events happening. However, if there is an acquittal, that just adds up to our perceptions of injustice, and that adds to the history and to the culture of, of, of what we've had to experience. And so, so there's this differential nonlinear effect to an acquittal and a guilty verdict. And, um, and I must say that an acquittal is not gonna have that greater impact on justice as, um, as an acquittal is gonna have a longer lasting negative effect on injustice. So, um, so <clears throat> Byron, I agree with you. I am, I am not very optimistic either way. Um, if, if there is a guilty verdict, um, we'll celebrate momentarily, but guess what? We're going to still be holding our breath, waiting and, and anticipating the next event. And oh, Byron, guess what? The next event had already happened. Professor Darren Davis, Notre Dame University political scientist. Sir, it has been a pleasure to have you on the Public Rally Day. Much enjoyed your insights. Thank you very much. Thank you, sir. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at Byron at PublicMorality.org. That's Byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at PublicMorality.org. You can follow me on Facebook as well as Twitter. The archive broadcast can be found on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or wherever you receive your podcasts. Once again, I want to thank Elvin Jenkins and Michael Burns at WJAB in Huntsville, Alabama for allowing us to broadcast the public morality at their studios. The public morality is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. In the words of Martin Luther King, we may have come on different ships, but we're in the same boat now. For all of us at the public morality, I'm Byron Williams. (laughs) 